The Start On Demand. On demand. Hey, hey, it's G-Mac on behalf of Loren McNabb and the vacationing Brett McGarry. Thanks for tuning in to The Start On Demand. We appreciate you downloading, sharing, and of course subscribing to the podcast. Lots on the manhunt. It is over. At least we're pretty sure. RCMP, of course, looking to confirm the identities of the bodies they found in northern Manitoba yesterday morning. We'll talk to you about that and give you as many details as we possibly can. Adam Big Hill, Winnipeg Blue Bombers, talks about what he's wearing to reduce the chances of concussion and brain injury. Bob Irving previews the Blue Bombers in their contest against the Calgary Stampeders tonight. And is there such a thing as closure? Yes, this is in conjunction to that manhunt and for those in Gillum, those of us in southern Manitoba and across the country who might be feeling relief today because this manhunt is over, is there such a thing as closure? And 90210, Beverly Hills 90210, is back. Jeff Braun will give us his impressions on that and much more on this edition of The Start On Demand. Let's get right down to business. The officers located two male bodies in the dense brush within one kilometer from where the items were found. This is approximately eight kilometers from where the burnt vehicle was located. At this time, we believe these are the bodies of the two suspects wanted in connection with the homicides in British Columbia. It's been stressful. It's, it's been a, a roller coaster up and down, and uh, uh, I, I myself am, am glad that that this has finally come to a conclusion. I'm Craig, she's Loren, it is the start. Sounds from yesterday, and when we left here around noon time, respectively, Loren, I don't know if either one of us expected to get that news yesterday afternoon, but as you've been hearing, since about 2 o'clock yesterday afternoon, the bodies of two murder suspects believed to be responsible for as many as three deaths in B.C. are now in Winnipeg. So they were brought here last night by plane. That's what we do know. They were pulled from the dense bush near Gillum, which put an end to that weeks-long, 24-hour-a-day manhunt that spanned four provinces. And RCMP say it covered 11,000 square kilometers. But like you, we have many questions still, and so do many of the families connected to this story. Like, how did these two men die? When did they die? And, of course, questions like, how did they get there? What were they doing in B.C.? And perhaps most importantly, why did these murders happen? Those are questions that may never be answered. Meaning closure for families in a community that lived in fear for days could be a long time coming. You know, when something like this happens, uh, the question's always why, uh, you know, how it came about and so on and so forth. And whatever, you know, could have possessed these two to do what they did. And uh, they'll never be able to, you know, nobody will be able, ever be able to ask that question. We're going to continue asking it, and we know the RCMP, Greg, are going to ask it as well. We're going to play a number of clips for you throughout this morning and, of course, revisit what happened. We're going to head back up to Gillum to hear just a bit more about this location where these two young men, the bodies of these two young men were found, and also the the thought from RCMP on how they will continue looking into this when you don't have the two suspects to put into a room and speak to. And so that's going to lead to lots more questions, along with the idea, and we're going to have a conversation on closure. Does does this mean anything 
for you if you were living in Gillum or in that area and you were concerned and, and lived in fear for the past few days, if you were a family member of somebody who died in such a horrific way and the suspects involved also died, would you feel closure? And I think that's something that a word we throw around a lot without really any sense of what that means for anyone. I think we throw it around a lot as it uh, relates to relationships, situations like this, the Mm -hmm. passing of a loved one under natural or normal circumstances, if you like, tragedy in our lives. And to a great extent, I was starting to already ask the question last week. I might have even asked it on air. Let's play out this scenario if a week from now, RCMP come in front of the Canadian public and say, we presume these two assailants to be dead. Will that be good enough for Canadians? No. And I got the sense it would not have no. been. So I would so, I would say closure does come then in the sense that you don't have to live in worry that there are two suspected killers out there. That brings an end to that right. part. So that's for, for most Canadians, right? 30 million plus. Then you have that two or three or 4,000 people in the general geographic area around Gillum where they were last suspected to be. But then, of course, then you boil it down to the families of the victims. And once again, nothing's been proven in court. But there are people who are connected to this story, who are grieving, who want answers, and they deserve and need more detailed answers than the general public. So I would say that there are three different stratas here. Mm -hmm. Those that have been affected in a general sense, those that were affected more intimately, those that, that had the military in their backyard, had RCMP in their backyard for almost three weeks, and then, of course, the families of the victims. So three different levels of of uh, requirement for, for quote-unquote closure, if you like. Right. So lots to dissect here today, and I think you put that really well, Greg, that there are different parts and feelings that different people might have. So we'll speak to Joe, who's up in Gillum, Joe Scarpelli with Global News. Diana Foxall was at the RCMP uh, news conference yesterday when that's information was shared when the story broke that these two men were dead and and she's going to help break down a, a bit what she heard. Are, are we saying that they're dead? Not, I, I don't want to question you so, on the air. Are we saying that it's well, them? What, 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 RCMP, what are we saying? RCMP have, are conducting an autopsy. They want to make sure that they've got the identities correct. The assistant commissioner said yesterday, she has every reason to believe it's these two young men, right. but you're right. We have to be careful before, before there's a definitive answer there. So th- that's another, I guess, still question sure. in theory that hasn't been answered for folks. And then on the idea of closure, and I'd really like to hear from, from you guys out there, um, you know, when you've been through loss, what does it take for you to finally feel like you've, you've gotten that word or you've reached that summit of closure? Is that just is such a thing? And after nine o'clock, we're bringing on a woman who's a, a professor in Minnesota, and she's written extensively on the idea of closure and, and kind of calls it a myth that there really is no such thing. There could be layers of it, but to keep throwing that at people like, oh, well, at least you have closure now can sometimes be insulting, too, because unless you're in it, you don't know, you don't you don't get to call closure on anything. Uh, now, I know that you grew up with animals, but you've been very clear about your lack of intimate, uh, <laughs> <Don't> <laughs> intimate relationship with, a, someone with yell your at me pets. About that. Yes. Uh, uh, you, you know, uh, there are people who 
have autopsies conducted on their pets because they want to know how did this happen? Why did it happen? So there are certain levels of information some people need that others may not need in order to close the chapter or at least put that bookmark in that that chapter. When my mom passed away, I know there there was a question about certain things because my mom was 51 when she passed away. So young. So we needed some answers. But I wanted certain things done respectfully, and so there was a line there as well, because autopsy is not a very respectful process necessarily in terms of of how they treat uh, the the deceased. So they try to do it in a respectful fashion. I understand that, but what is done, depending on what they're looking for, uh, can be a, a little bit unsettling, depending on how vivid your imagination is. And so for me, there was a certain level of answer that I needed, but that was different than what the level that my grandmother need. My, my mom's mom wanted more answers than I wanted. So I think it's a very different thing for different people depending on on your situation. So uh, this is going to be a, a great discussion. What time is that expert coming on? Just after nine. And yeah. And you make a great point. It's not about, you know, there's a very, uh, fortunately, a very small group of Canadians who've had to experience a loss of a loved one through murder. But there are millions of us who've lost people or you, you, you said pets, you know, things that happen and you, you're, that quest for answers continues for a lot of us oh. on a number of fronts, no matter what it is. Like, why did that go that way? Why does that person not like me? There could be a number of reasons and you don't get that answer you're looking for and that, that can sting too. So We mourn relationships uh, of people that are, are all living in the relationship, right? We dissect and we look back and we go, how did this go wrong? What could I have done differently? All okay. the grief... And closure just doesn't apply to people who've passed away. It has to do with marriages. It has to do with other relationships. It has to do with sports. Sure, You it have does. different things happen in games or yeah, events and you up. try to figure out why did it go that way or why has it been so long since you've had a championship or are we going to beat the stamps tomorrow? Tonight. That was quite the transition in about 40 <laughs> seconds. I'm proud of you. <laughs> start this half hour in Gillum, Manitoba. That's, of course, where the bodies of Cam McLeod and Ryder Schmigelski were found yesterday morning. As you know, they had been charged with second-degree murder in the death of one BC man and were also suspects in two other homicides. And while RCMP wanted to find these two men, RCMP Staff Sergeant Janelle Schwett says they had hoped to find them alive. That was our hope from the very beginning, that we would be able to sit in a room and um, provide that closure for the family. I mean, thankfully, you know, we have located them, and and this is a great step for us. And and I hope, I can only hope that with the news that the family is going to get some closure from this and have an opportunity now to move towards, uh, you know, the next um, phase in their grief. Family members, of course, will have so many lingering questions, as will the people in northern Manitoba who lived in the middle of this week's-long manhunt. I, uh, the bodies were found eight kilometers from where the burnt-out car was and uh, a few kilometers from, from town. And Global's Joe Scarpelli has been up there for the past couple of days. And he was in Gillum when the RCMP shared that the search was finally over and joins us now. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. I know it's been a heck of a 24 hours. Uh, one of the big questions still not answered is how long were these two men at that location? And, and do we have any sense yet of how they died? 
That's the question everybody I've been talking to wants answered. Um, we don't know how long they've been there. We don't even know how they got there because where they were spotted um, was in a very uh, difficult to reach spot. I was told it's very dangerous to access the area by foot. Uh, some locals I was speaking to yesterday said you could only get to where they were found by boat or helicopter or you can attempt to make luck but it's it's too dangerous and no local adv uh, advised to, to do something like that so there are a lot of questions how did they get there how did they die um why did they do what they did um it, it, uh, what they're ac accused of doing um so and uh, everybody i've run into since uh since the news broke are asking uh, those very questions joe i saw some of your video that you took yesterday and the environment, the landscape is, you know, forget about why you were there. It's awe-inspiring. The Nelson River, a uh, very wide river, this very deep, cavernous almost ravine that overlooks the river where you're taking this video. So it's this is not a, a typical southern Manitoba scene, Red River Valley, uh, where the Red River is you know, a couple hundred feet or three or four hundred feet wide in certain places. This is this is a, a massive, expansive river. Uh, with how high up were you from the river where you were taking that that video? It looked like twenty or thirty feet up above yeah, the I river. Would, I would say about thirty. It looked about thirty feet uh, above the river from uh, where I was standing on that uh, video I shared. So so difficult to get to that. I under, it's our understanding that it was challenging even for RCMP to to pull the remains, to pull those bodies out there and bring them to Winnipeg where autopsies are underway as we speak, Joe. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, so the, they found the bodies at about uh, 10 o'clock and it took about 10 hours to uh, to to transport them. I, there were, I know there were other things going on in those uh, 10 hours, but police weren't able to actually access that location i know the the searchers who found them were there but then when they had to recover the bodies what they did was they brought a boat uh parked at a loading dock uh brought the boat to where the uh the bodies were found loaded them onto the boat brought them back to the loading dock put them in a trailer and then drove them to the airport uh where they were uh, trans, where they they were then transported uh, to uh, Winnipeg for autopsy in two separate airplanes. So we keep hearing the word relief. What is the sense in Gillum this morning? Are people relieved that this is over? Are people looking forward to life getting back to uh, maybe a new normal for them? Oh yes, I uh, haven't uh, run into one person who isn't relieved, and I don't think I will in the time I have remaining here. Um, Everybody is, is, is so happy. I know people were saying they're getting tired of having to lock their cars and lock their doors and look over their shoulder and look out for a suspicious person. So they are very much looking forward to uh, life getting back to normal in this quiet community. We uh, were listening to some audio from the Gillum mayor, Joe, and he had talked to, and we'll play some of it again throughout the morning about the idea that, you know, for many people in that community, unlike perhaps when you live in a city, that idea of leaving your car unlocked or door unlocked was normal and having to go and lock it and, and stay in the house was just the complete opposite of how so many people there had been raised. It's, it's a pretty small community and we have to keep reminding people that, that it's not necessarily normal to look over your shoulder or lock your doors there. Not at all. The, the One couple uh, that uh, stands out to me in particular, they were uh, telling me they've 
it, it's the first time ever that they've that they've done that that they've locked their doors uh, uh, to their home and to their car. And they have never done that since they've uh, lived in uh, Gillum, and they they don't like it. They, uh, that's not the way this uh, the the community operates around here. Before we let you go, Joe, I know much of the police presence there has pulled out. Is it is there still remaining officers who need to leave, or is it relatively back to normal in terms of even that presence there in that community? Well, I can tell you, I was out. Um, I, well, I'm still uh, looking out of my window at the at the RCMP detachment. I've been up for a little uh, uh, more than an hour now, almost two hours. And usually by this time, there is so much action. You see all of the police officers get it gearing up. Uh, getting into their vehicles and heading out to search. It's just, uh, it's, it's a revolving door in the morning here at the RCMP detachment. This morning, I haven't seen one officer. Joe Scarpelli, thank you so much for your work over the last several days. You sprang into action over the long weekend. We'll look forward to seeing you back here in Winnipeg. Thank you so much for this. Thanks, guys. Joe Scarpelli in Gillum, Manitoba. And I have to say, when word got out that they had found these belongings, uh, believed to be of these two men, these two suspects, um, I didn't really get the sense that th- the end of this search no. was getting any closer. It almost felt as though it was getting further away because of, of, of how long it took for them to find these things. Well, yesterday we got the answer and the result a lot of people were hoping for, at least in terms of the manhunt being over. And later today, we're going to, obviously this is, there's lots to discuss here, but there's there citizens, normal people who are responsible for helping police get to that spot. And we're trying to track down the man that we know spotted one of the sleeping bags on the shore of the river and other items. The police say that was key. That was their big break. Um, lots to come on this throughout the morning. <laughs> next segment here, we're going to start this half hour with one of the big members of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Some might say the biggest, maybe not in stature, but one of the most important cogs in the wheel. Adam Bighill joining us this morning. Good morning, Adam. Good morning, guys. Great to have you here. And we're not going to talk about the game necessarily uh, this morning. We're here to talk about something else, something that you're doing to take care of your own health. An extra piece of equipment that I know a lot of people are asking about. They're noticing. I've uh, seen people ask you about it on your Instagram account. It's providing a, what you say is a possible edge or at least a safer edge to your game. It's called a cue collar, and its job is to reduce the possibility of concussions. Adam Bighill, how does it do this? Uh, I mean, it's a good question. Um, you know, it's pretty unique in the way it works. Um, so the collar... It applies um, slight jugular compression, and what that does is it reserves about a teaspoon and a half of blood back into the brain cavity. And with that, you have more, uh, you know, blood volume in the brain, and therefore when you have sports-related impact, uh, there's less room for the brain to slosh around and smash into the, uh, you know, skull. And so that's kind of what's been shown to tear a lot of nerve fibers and create a lot of uh, brain bleeding is from the brain kind of moving around and hitting the skull. So it helps to limit uh, that effect. So we know this device hasn't been approved by the FDA in the States, but it has the thumbs up from Health Canada. And the goal is to basically, as you said, put, increase the blood volume in your skull so it helps reduce the brain movement and then the possibility of concussions. When did you first hear about it? And what made you think 
okay, yeah, let's put that on and try it out for a game. Well, I mean, when I, it was interesting. The first time I saw it, it was in the NFL, and, and um, Luke Keekley for the Carolina Panthers was wearing it. Uh, he came off a real well-publicized and well-known concussion, and it wasn't his first one. And so he was looking for options um, to help protect himself moving forward. And, uh, you know, throughout the NFL, it got a lot of attention, and specifically I took a lot of notice because I thought it was a very unique piece of technology working in a very unique way to try to help prevent concussions. And so at that point, I knew I wanted to learn more and, and fortunately been able to find uh, you know, creators of the product and be able to to be able to try it up here in Canada. So you've worn it for two games, I believe. Do you, do you feel it when you're wearing it? Like, do you notice it while you're playing? Uh, at, so at first, what you, you, you notice it a bit because it's, you know, it's a foreign object on your body, just like any other piece of equipment. You know, I think when people start wearing a helmet for the first time, nobody really enjoys it to start off with. But, um, you know, so, uh, but by the time you're getting ready to go out there on the field and play, like you forget it, you have it on. So, I mean, it's just another piece of equipment that, you know, you wear that you eventually forget about. Young people uh, clearly uh, concerned about this. Uh, their parents are concerned about this. Uh, it's one of the reasons that uh, that, that football is is uh, not necessarily as popular as it once was at certain levels. Uh, but now the recognition that this is an issue, I think, is a powerful step. I played football as a, as a young man. I love the game, but I'm also someone who later in life suffered a very serious frontal lobe brain injury and, and still deal with the ramifications of that almost 22 years later. So I, I, I've kind of seen both sides of this. We've seen retired football players come back on the NFL and say, hey, you weren't giving us the straight goods on this. Do, all, do most players understand the risks involved now when playing football? Because you, you're in that sort of in-between stage, Adam. Yeah, I think a lot of players are understanding the risk that's involved. Um, you know, I think the example, example I brought up uh, a while, uh, a couple of days ago in an interview was uh, I think it was Chris Borland, who retired after, in the NFL after, you know, having a very successful step-in season for the 49ers and, uh, you know, was looking to be a promising star as a linebacker in the league and, you know, retired because he was worried about um, potential health to his brain and. Um, those kinds of things tell you the players are thinking about these things and uh, that it, that it is an issue. But um, definitely the Q caller is taking those steps to, you know, try, try to create some more peace of mind and, and really um, attack the problem in a totally different way. And, what and uh, you know, so I, yeah. I just wanted to pick up on the phrase you used, which was peace of mind. And, and I'm kind of curious that there's the physical component too, but then there's that mental component when you're playing any game that has such hard hitting impacts like football, where you might be in the back of your mind worrying about the possibility of concussion. And this might at least eliminate those fears so that you can focus on what you're there to focus on. Well, yeah, honestly, when you're out on the field, um, you know, definitely as a professional, you can't be worried about getting injured. Or you can't be worried about getting hurt. Um, because the more you focus on those kinds of things, the more you slow down, the more likely you are to get hurt. Um, but with that being said, I mean, uh, for, for players who have had concussions before who are returning to play, there is going to be a lot of a, conf- a lot of confidence that they got to be able to gain back. Um, and I know definitely, um, you know, wearing something like a cue collar would help provide that kind of extra level of comfort knowing you're doing everything you can going back out there. How old were you when you started playing football, Adam? 
seven years old. So you've, you've been playing for a couple of decades, and and, and I know even from just helping out at the odd odd practice uh, over the years, the technique uh, to defend yourself against a tackle, the technique for tackling itself has changed dramatically. The rules of the game have changed. Do you like what you're seeing on that front? Do you think that's making a difference as well in terms of brain health? Yeah, because of the communication now, it's not all about, um, you know, it's about playing smart. It's about tackling smart, keeping your head out of plays and, um, you know, not putting yourself at risk. And, uh, you know, so coaching is going along those lines uh, and it's a drastic change from where it has been in the past. So um, those things are definitely being done now. How much did you talk to your wife about this concern for the long-term, your long-term brain health when, when you see some of the things that have happened over the years? I don't, I don't need to uh, sound like a fear monger. You know all the examples. You know them better than I do. So if anybody's in the background going, oh, you just don't need to remind Adam. Adam knows better than many, uh, anybody uh, about the potential long-term ramifications of brain injury. How much do you talk about this uh, in your family? Uh, I mean, we've, we've had to talk about brain health for sure. Um, but at the same time, you know, we realize that, you know, this is my job. This is my passion. Uh, this is what I love to do. And, you know, with that, we, we understand the risks associated with that. So, um, with that being said, it's, it's, it's about me making sure I'm being smart and, uh, not putting myself at extra risk. Or, you know, if I happen to have an injury, not coming back too early, those kinds of things. Well, it's a smart decision, I think, to give this a test. We'll be looking for some smart plays tonight. Before we let you go, what's key for you, Adam, in securing a victory for the Bombers tonight? What's the one thing that needs to happen? Well, I think, uh, you know, as a whole, we need to play as, as, a, as a team all three phases. But so defensively, we need to create more takeaways for our offense. We need to create more momentum and uh, get Better field position for those guys. Give them some extra shots. Adam Big Hill, middle linebacker for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Hey, it's uh, you're a great addition to our community, Adam. We, we love having you uh, in Winnipeg overall, and uh, great to have you uh, part of the show this morning. Thanks for uh, bringing uh, awareness uh, to this cue caller and uh, more conversations about brain health. I don't think we can have enough of those. Awesome. Appreciate it, guys. We appreciate you. Adam Big Hill, Winnipeg Blue Bombers. The Very cool. It is. It's, it's an interesting concept. When I was reading up on the philosophy behind it, it sort of makes sense when you think about how concussion works. We always used to believe that if you weren't knocked out, uh, the concussion couldn't be that mm-hmm. serious. Well, we know now that that's totally untrue. If you just take an egg and slosh it around, hold it in your hand, and think about how little movement's required to, you can feel the yolk of that egg mm-hmm. bashing on the inside of the front of that shell. Well, that's your brain. That's exactly what your brain does, and that's not the, you know, this is your brain on drugs analogy <laughs> from back in nine's the best analogy in terms of what your brain does inside your skull in a collision, when you go in a different direction, if you're moving forward and suddenly you're moving back, lots of things to consider. This is an interesting one. If you want more information on it, give us a shout out. We'll send you a link we'll uh, to a couple different articles as well. We're going to get it up on our own website, globalnews.ca, cjob.com, and in just a short while. And yeah, the Q caller. Look it up. It might be something that makes a difference for you, for your kid, for your team. I don't know. Sometimes peace of mind, like you say, it uh, just it, it makes you more comfortable with what you're doing.
everything's coming up mackling here. We got Foo Fighters, we got Dairy Queen in the studio. Bob Irving's going to join us right now. Like it's like my three favorite things all together: football, ice cream, and the Foo Fighters. How can we anything get better than that? Not listening to you as I eat this. What are you I, eating? I don't know what it is. It's delightful. What you is this? Do you know? even, are you discerning the flavors? Or Dairy you just, Queen Blizzard. Yes. It's got chocolate in it. This one's Smarties. Oh. It's a big day for blizzards mm. in the city. We'll tell you why, how you can support. You can make a miracle or help make a miracle in support of one of our favorite organizations here in Winnipeg. We'll tell you all about that. But first, we much, we much, we must visit with the legendary voice of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, Bob Irving. Good morning, Bob. You guys. We're doing great. Uh, you should have been here in studio with us. We got ice cream, man. Oh, no. Isn't nope. that a little early for ice cream? Uh, it's lunchtime for us, Bob. <laughs> okay. You did this shift long enough. You know what happens at 837. You get a little peckish. Yeah, that's right. You're halfway <laughs> through your day almost, aren't you? Yeah, it's just about lunchtime. Hey, your day's yeah. just getting going. Are you having your walk or are you doing calisthenics? How are you getting ready for tonight? <laughs> well, I had my walk and a cup of coffee and uh, my uh, cinnamon toast. Um, so yeah, I'm just kind of relaxing, waiting for you guys to phone, going over some notes and reading the papers. I think he threw that cinnamon toast in because he knows how much I hate it. Yeah, yeah. he knows how much I that's, love it. But... That's just for you, Loren. <laughs> <laughs> so what's jumping out for you tonight? Obviously, this game is for first place in the West. The Bombers, Stampeders, and Ticats all have five and two records as we head into this week's CFL action. What's jumping out for you, Bob? Well, I think most people, uh, Greg, are looking to see how the Bombers respond to a little adversity. They've dropped their last two games, including that one in Toronto where they had a 20 to nothing lead, and uh, they got a first-place showdown tonight with the Calgary Stampeders, which has tremendous appeal from my perspective. So how will this team respond to its first adversity of the season? Will they you know, rise up and play much better than they did in Toronto in the second half? So that's, that's the first thing for me. Let's talk about the quarterback and who is or isn't in the lineup for the Stamps tonight with Bo Levi. Mitchell hurt back in June. Have they ruled him out for tonight? Oh, yeah. He's not going to play tonight. I, Dave Dickinson, their coach, said they gave it some consideration, but he's only had a week of practice. He's coming off an injury to his throwing arm, and it's the kind of thing you don't want to mess around But The other thing is they'd have to take him off the six-game injured list and that would mean they had to count his salary against their salary cap over the last six games. So a lot of factors went into leaving Bo on the injured list for one more week, and it'll be Nick Arbuckle again at quarterback for Calgary. And, of course, he's done such a great job for them in the absence of Bo Levi, I think better than a lot of people thought he would. And uh, here they sit at 5-2, and two, and, of course, it'll be Matt Nichols at quarterback for the Blue Bombers. And, you know, he, a lot of people have been critical of Matt over that loss in Toronto last week, but the Bombers did put up 27 points on offense, and they only had the ball twice in the fourth quarter after they scored an early touchdown to take the lead. But uh, it seems that when things don't go well for the Bombers, Nichols is the target of a lot of the fans. Now, uh, one of the great... Uh, takeaways from the game against Toronto was not on the field, but it was after the game and your conversation with Andrew Harris about the Bombers sort of going away from him in that second half. Uh, you were exasperated. I was exasperated. And Andrew Harris had a very difficult time disguising his emotions because he's usually a man with lots of words and, and lots of things to say. He, he basically just sighed and agreed with you. Uh, have you seen a, a resilience, uh, a snarkiness maybe with Harris in practice this week or any of the other Bomber players as they look to get back on track? 
Well, you know, these guys have a lot of pride. I, I think, as we all know, that's sort of a, a given. And that loss still stings, Greg. There's no question about it. And, of course, Andrew Harris was having a monster game. And as I look back now at the game sheet, they only had the ball twice in the fourth quarter, as I said. And on one of the possessions, they gave it to Harris on first down. That was in the third quarter, I think, more where we thought they kind of got away from the great game he was having rushing the ball. But, no, look, they've they've put that game behind them to the extent that they're not dwelling on it, but it's still there in the back of their minds, and they're thinking, look, we, we can't play like that and expect to have the kind of season that we're going to have. And I expect Andrew Harris tonight to play the usual uh, outstanding role that he plays. I found it interesting yesterday that Dave Dickinson, the coach of the Stampeders, when we talked to him, uh, was glowing in his praise of Harris, and not just his running and receiving. You know, he said he's a terrific blocker. He never makes mistakes, and those are the kinds of things that uh, Michael Shea is saying about him all the time. So I think we'll see a determined, uh, feisty bomber team tonight. Is he the most outstanding player in the league so far, Bob? Andrew well, Harris? In my mind, yeah, in my mind he is. I, I think he's a He's the runaway leader. I know Trevor Harris, the quarterback in Edmonton, has put up some outstanding numbers, but uh, I think Harris, if you voted today, he'd be a slam dunk as the most outstanding player in the league. I know every game's important and every win is important, but how key is tonight's matchup given what's coming in the weeks ahead with the opponents that they'll face in BC and then Edmonton, Saskatchewan? I mean, they're in for the potentially the toughest stretch of the season. Yeah, it's five Western games in a row, and they're they're playing Calgary three times this year, Lauren. So this is a big game. You know, you want to finish in first. The Bombers would love to finish first and have the home game in the Western final. And if they're going to do that, they have to put Calgary in their rearview mirror. And uh, so this is a best of three with the Stampeders, and it could come down to that at the end of the year. They meet twice late in the season. So this is a key game. Yeah, it's only game eight of 18 for sure. There'll be many more to follow. But, boy, the, the winner tonight, the winner tonight is going to have an edge in that race for first place. Calgary Stampeders, three straight wins. Winnipeg Blue Bombers, two straight losses. Uh, Bombers hoping something gives here to change that. What Bob, uh, Doug and I were talking, Bob, on the podcast about the idea of uh, three in a row of anything is a trend. We don't want to see uh, a three-game losing streak because then that, that tends to uh, feel a little bit different than one or two in a row. Well, sure it does. And, you know, I look back to last year, they lost four in a row and then bounced back and won five straight. But the four losses in a row cost them any chance to finish, you know, in second or in first place in the West Division. So you can bounce back and overcome a losing streak. But I I would say three in a row would really, really hurt the Bombers' chances of chasing down that first place spot that they want so badly. So... Yeah, tonight's a night for them to stand up and, you know, show their fans what they got. Okay, you got six hours planned. When does it start, and uh, where can people say hi? Well, it starts at 5.30. We'll be in the tailgate area, which is on the east side of IG Field, and there's always, Greg, you know, there's lots going on there with music playing and all kinds of activity, and then... uh, We'll kick it off just after 7.30, and could there be a more perfect day for a football game? Well, I suspect you would be saying that if it was raining cats and dogs, Bob, but uh, you're right. (laughs) Weather-wise, you're correct. Lots of people looking forward to this, uh, including uh, yours truly and uh, Loren McNabb and so many of our listeners. So we'll look forward to hearing from you at 5.30, and we'll see you later on. You bet, Greg. Look forward to it. All right, Bob Irving, the voice of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. start this hour we don't know how they died or how long they were in the bush before they were found but 
We do know the manhunt is over and that the RCMP believe they have their men after two bodies were found close to the Nelson River in northern Manitoba yesterday afternoon. But of course there remains many lingering questions and you just listed a few, like how did they die? RCMP Staff Sergeant Janelle Chouette says they had hoped to actually find these two alive. That was our hope from the very beginning, that we would be able to sit in a room and um, provide that closure for the family. I mean, thankfully, you know, we have located them, and and this is a great step for us. And and I hope, I can only hope that with the news that the family is going to get some closure from this and have an opportunity now to move towards, uh, you know, the next um, phase in their grief. So with that answer, I think a word so many of us use, Greg, and that is the word closure. We hear it all the time, the hope that a conclusion, maybe a verdict, a diagnosis, a test result will help bring closure. But as far as our next guest is concerned, the idea of closure is a myth. Dr. Pauline Boss is a professor with the Department of Family Social Science at the University of Manitoba. She's also a therapist and author of several books, including one called Ambiguous Loss. She joins us now. Good morning. Oh, I should put Dr. Boss on the air. Instead of Manitoba, but I would be honored, nevertheless. We'd love to have you here in Manitoba. Our last guest, in fact, uh, lives in the Twin Cities and is from Minnesota. So it's a parade of Minnesotans on the start this morning. Uh, Dr. Boss, Uh thank you again for this. You were, in fact, uh, credited with creating the field of ambiguous loss, loss without closure. Can you help us with that? Can you help us with that? Ambiguous loss is a loss that has no certainty. Uh, It's a loss that remains unclear. And in this case, the unclearness was the loss of the people who they think committed the crime. Uh, And so the the loss of the people who were murdered uh, was a verified loss. So death is a verified loss, but ambiguous loss is a loss like soldiers missing in action. That's a physical ambiguous loss. Or like with dementia, when the mind is lost, but the person is still there. So there is an incongruence between absence and presence that the family members have to live with, and that's very anxious-producing. Um, and, and so when, when someone is found, when the missing person is found, or in this case, when the missing um, alleged culprits were found, um, People tend to say the family now has closure, which in fact is very cruel because they don't have closure. What they have is certainty. They now have certainty um, that the culprits are either in jail or, in this case, dead. Um, And that happens with court trials, too, when somebody is pronounced guilty. We shouldn't say they have closure. Closure is a relationship term. Um, closure is a perfectly good word for business deals that have closure, for roads that are closing, for stores that are closing, but they're not good for relationships because even after someone um, is found, the pain does not necessarily end. In this case, just because these boys were found, does I'm... I'm proposing does not end the pain for the families. They have a lot of pain they're going to have to live with, perhaps for the rest of their lives. We we live with grief. We don't get over it. 
Why do you there suppose... There is no such thing as closure. Well, why do you suppose then, Dr. Boss, that we like to use that word or we choose to use that word or, or that we hope to even have find some truth in that word, I think, because in our psyche, I think we like the idea that something has improved for another and so that the closure encapsulates that. Well, because we're a very mass-reoriented culture uh, in Western um, civilization, I think, uh, we like a period at the end of the sentence, and we like an answer to the problem. And so closure is the perfect word to say, done, found the answer, mystery solved. Uh, well, that's very good in mystery books, um, but it's not good in human relationships. And if anybody has had any loss at all in their life of someone they cared about, or even if someone they didn't like who might have abused them, you can't just close the door on it. It's part of the fabric of your life. Yes, we learn how to manage it. We have a joy in spite of it. We balance joy and the pain of loss, but we don't necessarily close the door on it. My mom's been gone for about 17 years now. And as I, you know, uh, got married, I had children, uh, my brothers and sister, their, their lives have changed dramatically since our, our mother passed away. And so some people, you know, assume that time heals all wounds and things get better over time. But I'm of the mind that things are getting more difficult for me at Christmas and at special family <laughs> celebrations because the list of things that my mom never got to see is growing. That's right. And, and sometimes we, we can manage that, but we can manage it more easily if society didn't keep telling us we need a closure. So what your program is doing today, I think, is a wonderful public service because um, we can educate the public to stop using that word. Uh, yes, use it for a store closing, a road closing, a business deal closing, but not for human relationships. Because we keep thinking of the people who have gone ahead of us, like your mother and like many of my dear family members, um, we're not preoccupied with them. We don't obsess. But on certain holidays or certain anniversaries, we remember them. There may still be a tinge of sadness, which is normal, by the way. Uh, it's not normal to close the door. So, so uh, it's okay that I... I... I still get teary-eyed at certain things that remind me Absolutely. of my mom. And I think sometimes when I'm at, I'm at a funeral of someone that maybe I'm not necessarily all that close to, I feel that I'm mourning my grandfather, my mother, those that exactly. I've lost in the past exactly. at that time as well. So that, that's normal also, is it, Pauline? So you're a normal human being. You After can experience all. sadness, and you can also live a joyful life. You can do both and... Closure is a word that is absolute. It means you either have them or you shut the door on them. Well, life isn't that way. Uh, people are psychologically absent. They may be ill and uh, have dementia. We still love them. People may be physically absent, like a missing person, uh, like a child normally who just leaves home and goes off for work or for school. Um, we still love them. Absence and presence are not absolutes. We can live with people who are partly here and partly gone. Well, you've given us a lot to think about this morning. I want to thank you for this conversation. We're, of course, talking to Dr. Pauline Boss, professor with the Department of Family Social Science at the University of Minnesota. She's also the author of 
the book, Ambiguous Loss. And you can also find her website. Uh, it's also under the name Ambiguous Loss. Great concept. And I think it's a good conversation worth having. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'll send. I'll have to send uh, uh, Paulina a check for the for the therapy. Yeah, that's tongue in cheek there, but you know that's the whole idea of having these conversations. It might feel exclusive to what we were talking about, what's in the news, but there's a broader concept here, and we appreciate Pauline bringing that to to light for us. And today. if you haven't been in an experience like say you with the loss of your mother. Uh, you know somebody who has, and maybe you need to be more sensitive about the words you choose to use as well. Does everyone do that when they hear that song, like make that yep. knocking motion? I figured out how to play this on my guitar when I was a teenager. Yes? Yeah. <laughs> oh my, Jeff, you have to do that for us sometime. No, I haven't played it in 30 years. Oh, so you could do it. I, I told him to play it yesterday. <laughs> oh, gosh, I'd love that. You guys were in your collective glory, as my mom would have said once upon a time mm. yesterday. It was fun. The return of Beverly Hills 90210 with a little bit of a twist. Right, Jeff Braun? You called it yeah. sort of a curb your enthusiasm version of 90210. Yeah, it's a little it's it was pretty bonkers actually. It starts it's them not as their characters from the old 90210 show but as the actors themselves. Like Jason Priestley on the show doesn't play Brandon Walsh. He plays Jason Priestley, the actor who used to be Brandon Walsh 30 years ago on Beverly Hills 90210. Except that it's not really him because he's the, I had to look it up because I was wondering what was going on. It, they all get together for this reunion, the former actors, and and it's fine. It, it was a nostalgia hit like that, and it was interesting or whatever. And then it just started getting weirder and weirder. They, they had this little panel, interview panel with the fans or whatever at this convention, and then they went to the bar and started drinking. And then they started hooking up with each other, and Gabriel Carteris, who becomes spoilers a gr- alert, becomes a grandma at the beginning of the episode as this uh, encounter with his lady bartender. She wasn't a grandma in high school. No, I thought I remember her being a grandma in high school. <laughs> she's uh, she's eleven years older than Jenny Garth, by the way. Well, I know yeah, she I was like thirty when she played a seventeen-year-old. Okay, so but, so it started getting very soapy, and it was like actual nine hundred two and zero type storylines, except with the actors and was, and like Jason Priestley cheating on his wife. And then I was like, okay, well, that seems weird that an actor would volunteer. So I looked it up. I was like, oh, okay, that's uh, it's not his real wife. And so they're not playing themselves in the sense of what what you're seeing is not necessarily no. what's happened to them it's, it's in m- real life. It's like Larry David plays Larry David on Curb Your Enthusiasm, but that's not the real Larry David. Sort of an entourage kind of idea as well, the the behind-the-scenes look. Yeah, and and it's going to be about how they try to reboot the old show. So is this the end of it? Is it a one-shot deal? or it's six episodes. Six episodes? Yeah, yeah. There's five more to go. Well, I It's forgo- just cooking. It's just starting up. I had family over last night, so I didn't get a chance to see it. And then a friend texted that she was watching it, and I was like, oh, no. So I ran out at 8.50, and then I was like, oh, I'm way too far behind. Like, someone was, ha- you know, there was a half-naked Brian Austin Green, and I was like, who's this girl? What? By the way, he's done well over the years. I mean, they all look amazing. He's married to Megan Fox in real life. I right. forgot about that because he's married to some singer in the show and it was just it was, and he's a stay-at-home dad and stuff it was it was very it was i was having trouble trying to figure out the reality and the fiction of it all will you stick with it for oh, the six yeah. episodes it, it was fun it's only five more episodes yeah i, I noticed and that- i cried twice because they kept mentioning luke perry Oh. I actually cried? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. It was, it was I'm learning so touching. many things about Jeff. He plays mention, the guitar. You didn't mention Ian Ziering. He's in it. He's okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know. No, after no you, Sharknadoes? After you kill sharks in a tornado, it's hard to get excited about the 902. come back from that. Thanks, Jeff Braun. Yeah. We'll see you in a few minutes. Jeff Braun, uh, one of the Coach Potatoes. The Coach Potatoes will be back together uh, on these airwaves next week, I think. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.